own for you. Um, love the Lord your God. These are the commandments, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then you will eat and are satisfied. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to test as you did at Massah. But be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of these stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we may always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Amen. So, 
Deuteronomy is essentially a series of sermons that Moses passes on before he dies. And the sermon that we just read is a sermon on the first commandment. Deuteronomy chapter six is a sermon that Moses preaches on the first commandment. So if you already, like if you wanted to hear a sermon on the first commandment today, you kind of already did. It's coupon day, okay? Buy one, get one. Um, but this passage is, is hugely important. It's one of the most famous passages of scripture. One, because it contains the Shema. Has anybody heard of the Shema before? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you're supposed to love him with all your heart and soul and strength. It's the core text of Judaism, and it's central to our understanding of the good news and in our understanding of God in general for a couple of reasons. One, one reason it's the central commandment is because it's the foundational commandment that all the other commandments are built on. And when we talk about the law, what are we talking about? We're talking about about 613 commandments in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, okay? And the first, those 613 commandments are all outworkings of the first 10 commandments, okay? They're all based on that. So what do the first 10 commandments say? When the first 10 commandments say, don't kill. When the first 10 commandments say things like, Honor the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Don't take God's name in vain. Those 613 commandments all flow out of that. But the, the, those first 10 commandments, the, the latter nine of them are all based on this commandment. In fact, Martin Luther said it this way. It's a great quote. All those who do not at all times trust God, trust in his favor, grace, and goodwill, but seek his favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep the first commandment and practice real idolatry even if they were to do the works of all the other commandments. In other words, Martin Luther's saying that when you break any of the commandments, you've already broken this first one because this first one's foundational. So if you go out and you break the Sabbath, if you go out and you're envying and you're wanting something from your neighbor, if you're coveting, if, if you're stealing, it's because you don't love and trust God. You're not submitting to his lordship in your life. You're, you're, you're not believing he's one. If you go out and commit adultery, you're already looking outside of God and his plan for your life. So essentially what he's saying is we've turned good things into God things. And we're serving those things instead of him. It's called idolatry. And that's what happens whenever we break any of the commandments. The reason why at a heart level is because we're actually serving another God. We've already stopped loving and honoring God with our heart, soul, and strength. So when we talk about the law, it's summarized right here in this first commandment. When you want to think about what the law is, it's summarized right here. That's why the teacher of the law comes to Jesus, remember? And he says, what's the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? He quotes this passage. He says in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he, he goes on and he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? It's one we read right here, that God is one. And we're supposed to love him, not divided, but with one sense of being with all that we are. So it's foundational. But secondly, in this passage, 
beyond it being foundational to all the other commandments, there is a compact description of what it means not just to know about God, not just to kind of understand God, but to actually know God personally. How many of you guys want to know God personally? That's what we're going to focus on today. So four points, quickly. You must believe in God truly. You must love God transformatively. You must trust God unconditionally and tell God's story. You guys ready? All right, so first, you must believe in God truly. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. What's that mean? Well, you know, the dominant belief at the time is essentially that there's many gods. Why? Because there's so many areas of our life. You have a lot of areas in which you live, right? And so to cover all the bases, you need a lot of gods. You need gods for war, gods for fertility, gods for the harvest. You need gods for all these things. And then every area kind of has its own gods. You've got mountain gods and sea gods and crocodile gods and shark gods and all kinds of other gods, right? Tons of gods. And then somebody says, well, wait a second. What about that area over there? My family's moving over there. It's a cool canyon. Um, who's God over that? No, uh, wait, there's no God there? No, there's not really a God over that area. Uh, so, wait, so I can get away with whatever I want over there? <laughs> Absolutely. We have that in our culture, by the way. It's called Vegas. <laughs> right? Whatever happens in Vegas, what? Stay. Oh, yeah. And so, <laughs> no jurisdiction. Like, there's no God over this area. But then what happens? It stops raining and the crops are failing. Uh-oh. Who's God over this area? Oh, there's not one. Well, what do I do? Who do I sacrifice to? Who, what do I pray to? How do I get it to start raining over here? Right? You guys, you guys see how that would happen? And then this God comes along and says, that whole system, it's not working, and you don't need it, because what you've been looking for all along, you have in me. I'm one, not many. I'm not just over here or over there. I'm, I'm everywhere. And I don't change. I'm not temperamental. Like, you, you ever have, like, somebody in your life, you're never sure how to please them? And they change it one day, like you do one thing, and it makes them happy, so you do it again the second day, and then they get angry at you, and you're like, I don't know how to please you? That's kind of what would happen, right? People are sacrificing. Okay, the crops are failing. What do we do? We need it to rain. Sacrifice. It's still not raining. What do we do? Uh, up the ante. Sacrifice more, right? Pretty soon, where does it stop? That's why you got entire cultures that would get into stuff like child sacrifice. Sacrifice the most precious thing to them. Why? Because we have to figure out a way to live. We have to figure out a way to survive and get what we want. And we don't know how to please the gods. But this God says, no, I'm not temperamental. I'm the same. Yesterday, today, forever. I'm going to give you my law and show you exactly what pleases me. I'm a loving father. I care about you. I care about you no matter where you go. And I care about every area of your life, every nook and cranny of your life. I care about your finances. I care about your sex lives. I care about your harvest. I even care about what you eat. I care about what you wear. There's no nook and cranny of the planet that my presence isn't in, and there's no part of your life I don't care about. You see how that was revolutionary? This one God. And it's just as revolutionary today because the, the dominant belief back then is that there's many gods based on where you live, location. 
But the dominant belief today is still that there's many gods based on the individual, based on what you believe. Because our dominant belief today is that everybody has the right to believe in God for you in your own way. Our culture believes there's many gods, but God is saying here, no, there is one God. I'm the real God. You can't just make me up. You can't just imagine me as you want me to be. I've, I've already showed you who I am. I've showed you how I am in scripture. You have to believe in me truly. That's this first point we're talking about. And I know this isn't something that people in San Diego like to hear. Right? It's not necessarily the most fashionable thing to say. Uh, the average person in San Diego says something. Actually, I think it's kind of ironic. They say, I really want spiritual experiences. I would love to have a spiritual community surrounding me. But I want to kind of design my own spirituality and my own God. Like, I like this part of Christianity and that part, but uh, not that part. We'll just leave that over there. And we'll add in a little Buddhism and Shinto and Taoism and just kind of throw, fold it all in and create my own form of spirituality. It's a free country. Go ahead. But let me suggest to you that you'll have a certain outcome, an unexpected one. That is, you'll actually end up cutting yourself off from the same spiritual experience that you're craving. Why? Because it's not a living God. You, what you've got is, is you've got a designer God. But if, the moment you take certain parts of the Christian tradition and, and of scripture and you throw those out and you only keep other parts, you've created a God who can't challenge you. He can't fight with you. He can't disagree with you. You've got a cardboard cutout God. I remember when I went to, the uh, first time I was in Korea in the airport, they had this cardboard cutout stewardess. And she was awesome. And I remember like 12 years old running up and like giving her a kiss on the cheek and getting the picture, you know? Here's the deal, she didn't kiss me back. Why? She's a cardboard cutout stewardess. I'm just saying, you can't have a living relationship with a cardboard cutout. So if you're not willing to accept how God reveals himself in scripture, you've actually completely cut yourself off from the thing you're craving, the real experience. And, and let me help you with an ironic truth. Ironically, the God your heart most desperately needs is the God your heart didn't create. Because at some point in your life, you're going to feel worthless, what are you going to do when you feel worthless and the God you know you didn't create, like you go to him, what, what's he going to say to you? Is he going to be able to tell you, no, you're valuable? There's going to be a point in your life where you're going to feel guilty. You can't go to a cardboard cutout God and tell him you feel guilty. What's he going to tell you? You're forgiven? No, this is just a God you made up in your head. You need the real God, the deepest need of your heart is for a God you didn't invent, but, but one you discovered, a God you know is real. So first, you need to know God. To know God, you need to truly believe in him as he is. Also, to know God, number two, you must love him transformatively. The key word in this commandment, look at verse five. The key word is love. Verse five, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Every fiber of your being. And I think the first thing we think of when we hear that word love is, in our culture at least, is like, it's a little weird. How do you command somebody to love you? Can't, can't command me to love you. It's kind of weird, right? Isn't love just a feeling? But that's the point, right? 
That's the point. If love was primarily a feeling or an emotion, you'd only love somebody with part of you, right? But this God doesn't just want you to love him with just your emotions. He wants your emotions too, but he also wants you to love him with your intellect and your will and your actions and your words in every part of your life. The command here is to love him with your whole life. Everything's affected, everything's transformed by this love. What does that mean? Well, there's two tests. Two tests to tell whether you love God in a way that's actually transforming your life. You're not loving God with your whole being unless your life is being transformed. So how do we know? Well, one, look at the passage. It's talking about your individual life. Look at verses uh, seven through nine. He says, you'll talk on the road and in the home. So that's your, that's your public life out on the road and your private life in the home. He says, bind this truth on your head and on your hand. What does that, what does that mean? Well, that's your thinking internally, inside, and your actions externally, what you're doing outside. He says, as you go to bed and as you wake up, recite this truth. So your entire waking life, from the time you wake up in the morning to you go to sleep at night, you're supposed to living in, be living in light of this truth. He says, write it on the doorposts of your home. It means apply it to your family. He says, also, nail it down the gates of the city. That means you apply it to the economic, political, social, civic life of your whole society. So God is one, and what this is saying is that if you love God with your whole heart, it means you will love God with your whole life. Even, I mean, not just on Sunday, but when you go into work tomorrow and you've got a case of the Mondays, love God with your whole life. And on hump Wednesday, and then Friday rolls around and you're at the bar with your friends. Love God with your whole life. Not just your public life when everybody's watching, but who are you when you're alone? Who are you when nobody's around? Is it your private life as well? Is this truth transforming that area? It, like, not just with this person, but also with that person. Go into every corner of your life, your entire waking life, from the moment you open your eyes in the morning to you close them and sleep at night, public, private, inner, outer, and you constantly ask this question. How does who God is and what God says affect every nook and cranny of my life? Everything. You want absolutely every part of your life to be affected by the love of God. That's what it means. So firstly, to love him with all your heart, and with all that you are means it affects your individual life, but that's not all. It also affects your corporate life. Notice who God's speaking to. What, what does God say? He says, hear and love me who? Oh, Israel. Here's what we have there. God's not just calling you as an individual to love God, but God is calling individuals. Like, look around the room. God is calling the people sitting all around you, individuals, to come together and form a community that loves him in the very way the community is structured. Now, actually, I put together a really long point here of a lot of declarative sentences and information overload. And what I want to do is just flip the script right now. And instead of that, I would like to turn this into a dialogue. Are you guys down? Are you guys open to talking about this? Okay, so we're going to do a little question and answer. No wrong answers, but feel free to just jump in, okay? Uh, we're going to read this text, and we're going to imagine what it looks like to live as a community of light who's formed and transformed by the love of God. 
Okay, so we're going to read a text. It's just a few chapters to the right, Deuteronomy chapter 10, and it's an outworking of the chapter we just read. Um, and I'll have it up here on the screen for you. But if you want to know what it means, let's, let's look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12, and be listening this, uh, to this passage through the lens of, um, through the filter of, okay, what does it look like to be a community that loves God with everything that we are? That, that his love is seeping into every part of our community life and transforming even the culture around us. What, what does that look like, okay? Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Sound familiar? Okay. Now, now watch this. Skip on down to 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. All right, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. What, what it's saying here is that it's not just enough to bring the love of God into your personal life, but it's got to affect your social conscience. It's got to affect your understanding of where you are in society. Being a community of light in a culture of darkness. So let me ask you guys, what kinds of things would you see in a community that's taking the love of God into every nook and cranny of their life. What would that look like? What are some elements that you would see if a community was actually taking this serious and living it out? Mm, there wouldn't be the kind of fights that we see in some church. Not in our church. We never have that. But some of those other churches, right? Yeah. What else? No more what? No more gangs. Yeah, the violence, the oppression, the kind of even maybe social structures that cause gang mentality. Yeah, from the macro down to the micro. No more need for gangs. What else? Brian? Um, you're going to see people mixed together in ways they don't know. Mm. Different of life or so you're going to see people that normally wouldn't be hanging out with each other all of a sudden living like community. People from different socioeconomic strata, people from different age brackets, people from different ethnic backgrounds, genders, all this stuff coming together and living like community. It's actually, it's actually kind of nice to look at the crowd today because I'm just letting you guys know we actually kind of look like that. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yes, Peter. We would bear one another's burdens. When one of us weeps, we weep together. When one of us rejoices, we rejoice together. We're family. We shoulder one another's difficult times and struggles. Yeah. Yeah. Katie. We share what we have. Yeah. I love that passage in James where he says a brother in need might come to you and you say, oh, go with God, be blessed. He's like, no, you got like take care of their needs and pray for them, right? That's, that's what the church looks like. That's what a community 
would look like if we're bringing the love of God into us. That's what we... That's what true religion is. It's interesting that James points out true religion is, and he uses the same triad, doesn't he? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Study that triad out sometime. All throughout scripture. Those in need among you. The foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. There wouldn't be... Let's talk about that. The foreigner, there's there's not going to be racism. There's not going to be prejudice of any kind based on any group or class in this community. Why? Because you were foreigners. You were marginalized, and, and I loved you, and I brought you out. So don't, don't allow that to be. In fact, do you notice this, how often this goes back to how God has loved us? Those two commands kind of tied together. God has loved you, therefore love him with everything you have. And guess what? Here's how it looks like. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love those around you. Take care of the needs around you. Yeah, what else? Anything else? This is great. Brian. There's nobody that nobody cares about. Mm, nobody just got kicked to the curb or left out. Yeah. Everybody's cared for. No more bullying. Yeah. And you know what? That's a great point, too, because there's, I would say this, there's a transition of power. I mean, look at you. You've got some skills. Maybe you went to the school of hard knocks. Maybe you got your degree, graduate degree, and now you're a big-time baller in the world of math or social sciences or something, okay? Knowledge is power. And you can use that power the way the rest of the society does unilaterally for yourself to get more money, to get more power, to get more influence. Or you can do it how this verse is saying, huh? You can use it in a shared way. Use that Use that power that God has given you, that influence to open doors for other people, to help share money, to do pro bono work, right? Are we seeing how this is kind of worked out? This is the kind of community that God is calling us to be. And in fact, he says, if you're not living like this, you don't even realize the grace that I've poured on your life. You're not living in light of the amazing grace that I've heaped on you. So, when we say this, we say, you must love God transformatively. That means you take the love of God and you let it transform every aspect of your life, individually, communally. Every nook and cranny is being reshaped by the grace of God. And if you're not doing that, if you're not working that out, you're not loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You're not loving God in a life-transforming way. Amen? So, point one, believe in God truly. Point two, loving God transformatively. Third point, briefly, trust God unconditionally. Look at verse 16. He says this, do not test the Lord your God as you did in Massa. And that refers back to Exodus chapter 17, when basically the children of Israel were afraid. They're going to die in the desert because we don't have enough water. What are we going to do? Moses, we're going to kill you, and we're going to go back to Egypt. You know why? Basically, they're saying, we'll follow God if. We'll follow God if he proves to us that he's worthy of our following by getting us water. To test is to consider a party guilty until they prove themselves innocent. 
And they're testing the Lord God, saying, I'll follow you as long as my life is going the way it ought to go, as long as I get the explanations to all my questions, as long as you give me the life I want on my terms and you prove yourself worthy to me. As long as you do that, I'll follow you. The problem is this. What happens when we get in the wilderness of our lives? When we have health problems, when we have disappointments in our career, when we have relational struggles, anybody ever have wilderness times in your life? What happens there? We start to talk like this often. Here's, here's, here's what I hear even in my own heart, the grumbling. Isn't God all-powerful? Then he must be incompetent. He really sucks at his job. Like, what is God doing up there? Everything's going wrong. I'll follow God if he starts to make things right. That's testing God. And let me tell you why that doesn't work. Elizabeth Elliot, has anybody heard of her? She used to travel up to North Wells, Northern Wells, and uh, one year she went to Northern Wells at this time of the year when everything, like the shepherds who live there have to do this atrocious thing to the sheep, okay? Um, because these sheep will get parasites, and the parasites will little, they'll, they'll just eat the sheep up alive. And so they take the sheep, and they have this huge vat of antiseptic, and they have to put the sheep through the antiseptic. And they can't just let them walk through it. They have to submerge them completely and hold them down in the antiseptic, which how many of you have ever washed a cat? <laughs> yeah, imagine that, okay? And so she says this. She, sa- she noticed one by one, John sees the animals, and they would struggle to creep out the side, and Mac the sheepdog would snarl and snap at their faces and force them back underwater. And when they tried to climb up the ramp in panic, John would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, holding them ears, eyes, and nose submerged for a few moments. As their lord and master, he was pushing their head under, drowning them, at least as far as they could tell. And their panicking little eyes would look over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? And then Elizabeth Elliot says this, who, by the way, she had two husbands die at this point in her life. She's young, she's 45, been living her life on mission for God and gone through sorrow after sorrow. Here's what she says. I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There were times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd, whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. But think, the shepherd has to do that to the sheep or they'll die. On one uh, one hand, they'll die. On the other hand, there's no way that the shepherd could really sufficiently communicate this to the sheep. Right? Right? He couldn't give them an explanation, couldn't give them the comfort or assurance they need. So there's two possibilities. The sheep can die, or the sheep can trust the shepherd, sometimes without sufficient explanation. Why? I mean, honestly, there's a gap of intelligence and perspective between the shepherd and the sheep. Because the gap is so great, there's no satisfactory way to explain it. It means that the sheep either trust and submit to the shepherd or they die. And guys, it's the same two choices we have. The difference is the gap between us and our shepherd is infinitely greater than the gap between us and the sheep. We're finite, God's infinite. And if you say to God, I'll trust you if, conditionally, based on this, I'll trust you if, What makes you think you're smart enough, honestly? What makes you think you have enough perspective or could even handle the perspective? Can you see the end from the beginning? How could you possibly know he's not doing what's best for you? 
You can't. Here's the deal. If there's no God, then there's no issue. But if there is a God, you have to trust him unconditionally. You have to trust him without explanation. You have to trust him without all your questions being answered. Either there's no God, so we're in darkness and there's no rhyme or reason to any of this, or there is a God and you have to trust him without conditions. But one thing you can't do is the thing we often try to do. And that is we say we'll follow God as long as he comes through for us on our terms. But how can we know whether he's coming through for us or not? We're sheep. So we have to trust God unconditionally. And listen, if you're able to turn that corner, if you're able to say, okay, I understand what's going on here. I, I, I mean, I don't, maybe I don't understand all the details of it, but I kind of get the big picture. And I know you're my great shepherd. I know you care for me. So whatever is going on, I, I, I trust your heart. You know, if you're able to agree with Charles Spurgeon, who said, when you cannot trace God's hand, you must trust his heart. If, if you can get there, then there's a calm, there's a peace. It's remarkable. You're, you're going under the water, but you know he's there. How can you get there? How can you get to a place where there's trust, calm? How can you get that peace? Last point, number four, you must tell God's story. In verse 20, a son asks his father a question. What's the meaning of these laws? And basically, here's what the son's saying. Dad, I see you obeying God. I see you following him, trusting him, unconditionally loving him transformatively, but why should I? And here's what I find interesting. The answer doesn't go right to verse 24. The answer isn't a command. It's not because God commanded it. I know, like when I grew up, I had a bunch of friends asking questions of their parents. Why are you guys doing this? Why are you serving God? Why are you going to church on Sunday? Why are you living on mission? Why, why, why? I don't get it. Why should I do this? And parents normally say what? Because God said so. (laughs) Honestly, that's what a lot of my friends' parents said. In other words, when you ask somebody a reason behind their faith, you point them to a law and you say, why do you obey these commands? Here's the answer. It's another command. Why do you obey the laws? The answer is another law. Because God said so. But that's not what happens in this passage. Before verse 24, what happens? And here's the deal. Like, what's the problem with that? What happened with a lot of my friends? A lot of my friends just stopped serving God or left church altogether. Maybe some of you guys experienced that in your own story. Maybe some of you, you didn't have sufficient explanation. Because a law is not going to satisfy a child's heart. And a law is not going to satisfy any of our hearts. It might work for a moment. You might get compliance. You might get them to obey and to do something right. But in the long run, that's not going to change somebody's heart. So what does this passage do? In verse 22 and 23... The answer of why should I obey the commands is not another command, it's a story. This is not, the the father's not supposed to say just do it because he's God. No, he tells the child the story of deliverance, the story of grace, the story of the gospel. The meaning of the law is the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the story of God coming into history and rescuing and renewing all of creation, starting with us. God saved us. God purchased us for himself, for his glory, for his mission, for his story. And in this text, Deuteronomy 6, the version of the story that this father tells is the only version of the story that they had at that time. It's the most advanced version of the gospel at this point in history. 
And in the Exodus, what are we told? We're told that the Israelites are in slavery and God intervenes in time and sends a deliverer named what? Moses. Checking to see who's falling along still. And God sent, God sent some plagues. How many plagues? Ten. Nice. God brought down his judgment against evil on Egypt. How did the Israelites get out of that? They're sinners. They're broken people just like the Egyptians. They live in Egypt. How did they get out of the judgment? What happened? The answer is the blood of the lamb. In fact, here's a cool note. Before the law was ever applied to the doorpost, the blood was applied to the doorpost. Passover night, everyone else is dying because of God's judgment. But the Israelites took shelter under the blood of the lamb. They slew a lamb, they ate it, they put the blood on the doorpost and the judgment of God passed over and they hid themselves under the blood. That's the answer. As far as they knew at the time. Why should I obey the law? The answer is not, we obey the law to get to heaven. We obey the law to get a blessed life. We obey the law, otherwise God will get you. No, no, no. God's already blessed us. Therefore, we obey. God's already given us life. Therefore, we obey. God's already secured for you a place in heaven. Therefore, we obey. It's not out of fear or coercion, but love and gratitude. Because before the law went on the doorpost, the blood was on the doorpost. The meaning of the law is God's intervention and his grace. And that's why it's out of gratitude, my son. But see, that can only go so far too. Because eventually, I think what happens is the son, if they're curious enough, asks, yeah, but dad, how does a lamb's blood take away our sin? And the dad's like, that's a great question. I've wondered that too. Don't argue with it. Just go with it, right? (laughs) That only goes so far. But John the Baptist was standing on the shore and he watched Jesus walk along. Anybody remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist got it. I get it. The lamb didn't take away our sins. They were just a symbol. Here's the lamb of God. God himself came. God himself came to take the judgment, to absorb the debt. Because the whole Exodus is pointing to something. The Exodus is the gospel, and it's all about who? Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. He didn't just give the law, he fulfilled the law. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb who's slain to remove God's wrath from us. Jesus is the greater firstborn who died not for his own sin, but for the whole, the sin of all firstborns in the whole world. Jesus is the greatest savior who redeems not millions from one nation, but billions out of every nation. Jesus is the greater redeemer, taking us on a greater promised land, the eternal kingdom of God. And Jesus is the greatest lawgiver, not only writing his law in stone, but also on the new hearts that he gives us, hearts that want to obey his law. That's our Jesus. As you look on him, as we close and wind this down, and you see God's love for you in the gospel, that's how you can begin to trust him unconditionally. That's how you can begin to love you, love him transformatively. Because he loved you transformatively. Because when you look at him, it's not just enough to say, hey, you have to trust him because he's God. So you're just sheep. You can't fathom why he's doing what he is. That'll, that'll work for a while. 
But eventually you need to see the greater truth that the shepherd became a sheep. He became a lamb. He became a little lamb that was destroyed. He became vulnerable. The powerful creator limited himself and allowed himself to be killed by his creation. That's why I can trust him. That's how I can tell the story. And here's the point. You have to tell the gospel story to your heart or you will not love God transformatively. You will not be able to trust him unconditionally. You will not believe in him truly. You've got to find ways to remind yourself of the gospel, to put the gospel on the doorpost of your life. Everybody has different ways to do it. As a community, we have to find ways to nail the gospel on the gates of our city, to live it out, to tell the story in a way that influences culture. So today as we come up and we take communion, I want you to think about that. What does this actually look like in my life? What does it look like to write the love of God, the law of God's love for me on the doorpost of my heart? What does it look like for us as a community to nail it to the gates of our city? Here's some questions for communion, and then we're going to pray and we're going to come up and take communion together. What nooks and crannies of my life has the gospel not reached yet? Where do I not believe or trust or love in one God? Where am I struggling to trust him? Where am I struggling to love him? Where am I struggling to believe in him as he says he is? And we're going to come down and and take some time to repent about that. And remember that these crackers and this grape juice represent that Jesus Christ, his life for you lived every day in the flesh, his perfect life, his death for you on the cross is sufficient. You don't have to hide. You don't have to act like you have it all together. You need to come down and just be real today because you're a family of a bunch of other broken people who are trying to figure this out. We're all trying to work this truth into our lives. We're trying to let the gospel and the love of God settle in our hearts. So we're going to ask that. And, and then as we believe, what are some ways that we can move out of here and write the gospel on the doorpost of our heart and nail it to the city gates? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you designed this plan from the beginning. That your word says that Jesus Christ was the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. That you knew we were going to mess up. You knew we were going to be selfish. You knew we were not going to trust you. We were going to love ourselves. We were going to try to say, well, I'll serve God if he does this. We were, we were going to use you. And you said, that's okay. I love them anyway. I'm going to send my son to bear the burden of their guilt and shame and sin so that they don't have to, so that they can be free to live a life of love, so that they can be connected to me. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for freeing us from the slavery of sin and promising that we're on a journey to a greater place, a land flowing with milk and honey. Thank you. I pray that on this journey, our church would increasingly know what it means to be a people of one God, a monotheistic people that worships one God, that we wouldn't settle for worshiping lowercase gods in other areas of our life, but that we would surrender all of our life to you and that we'd increasingly find ways to trust you. In Jesus' name, 
we pray. Amen. So if you're new